Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to that Caixin Seneca Business Brief brought to you by SubChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, our weekly review of business stories from Caixin. After two years of setbacks and delays, construction is set to begin on a high-speed railway linking China and Thailand. The project's first phase will be the first high-speed rail line in Thailand. The Thai government estimated that it will cost nearly $6 billion and take four years to complete. But you can only imagine what a spur this will be to Chinese tourism to Thailand, a country that Chinese can visit without a visa. According to the statement, China will provide expertise and supervision, while Thailand will provide equipment and materials. China also promised to use a number of Thai engineers and architects as part of an effort to help the Southeast Asian country master the maintenance, operation, and management of high-speed railways. One of China's leading electric vehicle makers, BYD, says it plans to launch mini- and small-size electric vehicles, or EV, within two years in response to rising demand in small towns and villages. The all-new battery-powered subcompacts will target third- and fourth-tier cities and gradually dominate BYD's EV car business. A government effort to promote zero-emissions transportation in the fight against air pollution has helped to spur EV sales. For example, manufacturers and buyers can qualify for government subsidies. And in big cities, EV buyers have been given a better shot than other drivers at obtaining license plates, which are tightly controlled by authorities as a traffic control measure. In congested Beijing, for example, licenses are distributed through a lottery system. In the April session, only one out of every 800 candidates got the okay to have a gasoline-fueled car, while half of applicants secured plates for a renewable energy vehicle. Speaking of cars, South Korean car makers Hyundai and Kia are running out of gas in China after 15 years in the fast lane. International politics, uh, market challenges, and branding issues are now haunting the companies whose vehicles once enjoyed a major following in China, the world's largest auto market. Year on year, China sales for Hyundai and Kia each plummeted more than 60% in June. Hyundai and Kia have linked the sales decline and subsequent cutbacks in car manufacturing in part to Chinese consumers' unhappiness with the South Korean government's decision to allow U.S. military deployment of the THAAD 
anti-ballistic missile system, the theater high-altitude air defense system, unhappiness, which, of course, was entirely patriotic and spontaneous and couldn't possibly have had anything to do with state media encouragement. China's Aviation Authority has proposed lifting restrictions that currently limit the number of Chinese airlines allowed to operate international routes from China to key destinations in certain countries. Private airlines would be allowed to join state-run competitors in bidding for routes between China and the United States, Australia, Britain, Southeast Asia, and selected other parts of the world, according to a regulation drafted by the Civil Aviation Administration of China. If the regulation were to take effect, China would no longer limit international routes for many long-range destinations to a single airline. For example, the change would open to competition the Beijing to Los Angeles route, which has been controlled by state-owned Air China for years. A privately run website for military buffs is getting a big state salute with an investment by the official newspaper of the Communist Party, People.cn, the website of the official People's Daily, disclosed that it will pay about 7.2 million yen, about $1.08 million, for a 1.5% slice of the online community Tieshue.com, whose name literally means steel blood, a reference to the unbending and upright quality of the 2 million people who make up China's military. In exchange for the stamp of official approval, Tieshue.com will give People.cn representation on its directorial and editorial boards. People.cn will also get editorial representation on a wide-ranging site that includes ads for military attire, books and films, and articles on such varied topics as China's recent conflict with India, and most importantly, gives people the opportunity to buy and consume the steamed dumplings that are eaten on naval vessels. Alibaba-backed Ola.me agreed to buy the Waimai food delivery division of internet search giant Baidu, the company's announced Wednesday, but did not disclose the price of the deal. Sources close to the deal said it involved 800 million U.S. dollars. The deal has been the subject of extensive talks between the players and follows several failed attempts by Baidu to offload the unit for much more money. Shanghai-based Ola.me, which in recent years has received more than $10 billion U.S. in startup support from venture capital firms and tech giants that include Tencent, JD.com, and Alibaba, will pay Baidu about $200 million U.S. in cash and $300 million U.S. worth of shares for full ownership of Waimai, the sources said. And finally, China's netizens are outraged by what they call police overkill in suppressing voices online, after a patient who complained about tasteless food at a public hospital was detained, and a schoolteacher was detained for questioning alleged forced donations to a local government program. Police in the city of Weinan in Shanxi province last week confirmed that they had ordered the detention of a local teacher for picking a quarrel and provoking trouble, linked to an article posted on Chinese microblogging site Weibo in early June. In the article, the teacher, identified only by his surname Li, complained about how civil servants, including teachers at public schools, were forced to give 200 yuan, about 30 bucks each, in a one-time donation to a poverty relief fund backed by the district government. Police said the donations were made on a voluntary basis, and that it detained Lee because he allegedly spread false information. The revelation came after the detention of another internet user last week in Shexian, in the northern province of Hebei for complaining about the allegedly pricey and tasteless food served at a local public hospital. Imagine that hospital food not being good. This incident, anyway, made national headlines in recent days. The former patient posted an article in an online forum and on social media platforms like WeChat. 
fuming about the small portions of food that patients were served at the hospital and how expensive they were, even though they tasted bad. And this, of course, reminds me of that joke that opens Woody Allen's Annie Hall. The food at this hospital, it's terrible, says one patient, to which another adds, yeah, and such small portions. The man was taken into police custody for fabricating facts and disturbing public order. Let's turn to Caixin Global senior editor Doug Young now to talk about a couple of major stories for the week. China's high-speed rail system is already marvelous, but it's about to become more so. Doug, what's the story here this week? Well, the news here is that uh, China is rolling out this new generation of rail cars, and as part of that, they're going to officially bump up the highest speed that, that uh, trains can travel in China on these state-of-the-art rail tracks, and they're going to bump it up to a 350 kilometers an hour, which which is about 215 or 220 miles per hour. This is going to be the fastest speed ever, and it's, it's going to start out on the Shanghai to Beijing line, but it's going to be a world fastest for a, a regular high-speed train service. Great, but is it really a big deal that it's the world's fastest? I mean, some of the lines were, what, already 315, 320 kilometers an hour well, I think whenever you can claim to be the est, you know, the most, the, the fastest, the brightest, whatever, it's always a, a relatively big deal. Is it that significant if, if uh, Japan has trains going at 348 kilometers an hour and you have them 350? That's probably less significant. But I think the, the bigger significance here is that these tracks were designed to take speeds uh, even faster. And there's a little bit of history here in that uh, China originally had started running these trains a bit faster. And there was, there was a very bad accident about probably four or five years ago uh, near the town of Wenzhou in Zhejiang. And after that, they lowered the speeds uh, because it was clear this, you know, the, the rail operator wasn't very experienced at operating this very new and very fast system. So, I think the fact that they're bumping it up now is is significant in that it shows they're slowly gaining the confidence and experience to operate these things at, at the speeds they were originally designed for. So, Doug, how do you think this is going to impact the airlines? I mean, I already, when I travel between Beijing and Shanghai, I mean, it's for me, it's a no-brainer. I, I take the high-speed rail because door-to-door, it's often actually faster and I can work really comfortably and there's Wi-Fi, there's power. Well, I think this will probably make the trains even more competitive. Right now, a trip from Shanghai to Beijing is about five hours uh, on one of the trains that makes less stops and that'll go down to almost four hours afterwards. So you can start to see, you know, a, a trip by plane from Beijing to Shanghai takes about an hour and a half to two hours now. And with delays and all the other problems, uh, you can see how this is probably going to do a lot for the Shanghai to Beijing connection, which is already a pretty popular connection. Uh, as they start rolling out these faster trains to other cities, I think that'll actually have a much bigger impact on the airlines because a lot of these secondary routes take more like seven to eight hours. So that'll bring these routes down to, you know, maybe six hours, which I think will start to get to the level. I think once you, you know, when you're talking seven to eight hours, people would rather take a one and a half hour plane ride than, than do a six or seven hours. Uh, but when, you know, when you start bringing them down into the five, six hour range, I think it gets to the point where people will start to consider it. 
And these train tickets do tend to be a little cheaper than the air tickets. So I would say, you know, this will probably pose a, a pretty big challenge. Anytime you can lower the time at all, and especially, like I say, into the sort of five or six hour range, I think people start to consider the train as an alternative to the to, to flying. Well, I certainly agree. And um, maybe this will prompt the airlines to shape up their intolerable and altogether too frequent delay situation. Uh, thanks, Doug. Uh, but let's go from trains and planes to automobiles now. Uh, U.S. automaker Ford Motors is getting into its third joint venture in China now. What's Ford up to? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, Ford, like all the other automakers, uh, all the other foreign automakers, I should say, is is uh, freaking out a bit because China just rolled out rules. They started uh, proposing them last year, but uh, they've pretty much formalized them at this point, saying that all car makers have to sell a certain percentage of their cars as new energy vehicles, which can be electric or, or hybrid. By next year, and I think the percentage is around 8% next year, uh, 2019 is 10%, and then 2020, I think it has to be 12%. They're, they're, they're fairly big percentages, you know, for these companies that sell, you know, a million cars in China a year. Well, actually, yeah, I think some of them sell a million cars a year. Um, so companies like Ford and GM and Audi and, BMW don't have any electric car sales in China at all. And suddenly they've got to make 8% of their sales in China coming from these new energy cars as of next year. So that's what I meant when I said Ford is freaking out a little bit. Um, so what they've done is they've basically gone to a, a Chinese company that has a relatively developed uh, sales network and, and, you know, they have their own electric vehicle products. So why does Ford need this third JV? I mean, can't it produce new energy vehicles and existing partnerships? Okay. Well, you're right. They, they already have two joint ventures making traditional cars and, and China actually in the past limited foreign companies to only two joint ventures, but they're making exceptions now for these new energy joint ventures. And, they need this joint venture because they need to find a source for electric cars that they can sell to to meet these quotas. So uh, in this case, they they need it specifically for access to these electric vehicles that are hopefully going to help it to meet this this quota that says they have to sell about eight percent of their cars as electric vehicles next year. And I take it that's why other companies are considering doing the same thing. <laughs> Considering sounds like a very, uh, a very nice way to say it. Yes, they're, they're sort of scrambling is probably a better way to say it. VW has already announced its own joint venture plan. Daimler, I think, has already, uh, they're, they're working on a plan with, uh, BAIC, which is a big, big, uh, electric car maker, or they're trying to be a big electric car maker in Beijing. And and so yeah, Ford is is basically jumping on to this this bandwagon. Uh, they've got four more months before the the new year begins, and and they got to come up with some pretty sizable electric cars, you know, during that time. 
Do the Chinese partners have the capability to actually produce electric vehicles in those numbers? I mean, Ford sells a lot of cars. I mean, if they're just putting this on their JV partner. Well, uh, you know, I think everybody's going to be watching to see how close they can come to meeting these. I personally think these quotas are, are quite ambitious and it'll be impossible for people to meet them. So, you know, China, Beijing can throw at any number they want and say, you have to meet this. But at the end of the day, whether or not you can actually do it is another question. And then what do they do when these companies can't meet the targets? And that would be my next question. I mean, what would the penalties be if they fail to meet those quotas? Well, they haven't really set out any penalties. And and I believe there's also going to be a marketplace for companies that do sell, you know, purely electric cars. So like maybe a hundred percent of their out, you know, sales are electric cars that they can actually get credits that they could say, because if I'm an electric, I'm, if I'm a pure electric car maker, I'm a car maker and I only need to make 8% of my sales as electric vehicles. That means I have 92% of my sales could have been gas powered vehicles. So the, I think they're going to try and develop a, a market for credits for companies that do too much electric vehicle or new energy vehicle production can actually sell their credits to companies like Ford, you know, that traditionally did most of their business in uh, traditional gas powered vehicles. Well, we'll see how this all works out as always. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Kaiser. <laughs> Let's turn on to Li Rongde, general news reporter for Caixin Global, to tell us more about a deeply disturbing story about how young boys are being recruited for paid fights. Rongde, tell us about this. Yeah, the story starts uh, as a viral video online showing there's two kids fighting to each other in a cage, apparently in a commercial match. And the video then become viral. Then, you know, there's a lot of discussion and become a controversy. Um, the controversy, because you know, these cases are school-age cases, they are supposed to study at the schools. Mm-hmm. But now they are being sent to uh, these private clubs in Chengdu to train the, you know, full-time as a, a boxer. So you said they were sent there. Were they actually sent there, or did they somehow just end up there? According to uh, owner of this uh, club in Chengdu, he said most of the case, they already uh, dropped off school. They've been sent uh, by the local civil affairs officials and the, the, their relatives uh, to the clubs. And he admitted he recruited a few. Mm. Hmm. Can you give us an idea of just how young they are? I mean, you said they were underage. No, we tried to uh, reach the the club to uh, verify how exactly these these uh, boys are, and um, they declined to to give sure answer. But they said is eighty uh, percent of the boys drop out from the school, which means they are still school age students, you know, teenagers. So this club. Can you tell us more about it? I mean, what exactly does it do and, and what does it do for the students? I think this club is a private owned and it was set up by a former paramilitary of, of officers. And basically, he trained people to participate in these, you know, these commercial boxing match 
But he said he's、uh, he recruited students or being you know accepted students because it's good for them. Otherwise, they just left back at home doing nothing. Well, we'll get to that in a second. But first, there's been an investigation into the club because of this video. So, what can you tell us about the investigation? I think that there's two parallel、uh, investigation. One by the authorities back in Liangshan Prefecture. They basically invest in you know potential negligence by the local official when they come down to the care for the childrens. There also there's an investigation in Chengdu by the police into you know potential、uh, mistreatment of the childrens, but the investigation is still ongoing. So no conclusion. No conclusion. Yeah.、So、this story is interesting to me for a couple of reasons. On one level, it's just absolutely appalling, but. There's also some social issues that relate specifically to China. I mean, what part, for instance, did the Hukou system, or China's household registration system, some would call it an internal passport system, what did the Hukou system play in this? And and China's general lack of a child welfare system, what part did, did these factors play? If they are still not exploited by the club, I think it is okay for them to come to the the club to to train as a boxer. But at the same time, they are Teenagers, they need to go to school、uh, under the law, but they don't have the hukou, which means they are not registered as a residence in Chengdu, which they cannot go to public school in Chengdu.、Mm-hmm. And the club tried to give them a schooling, but that's not enough according to the law. And there are some interesting details about that.、Um, how much actual education was this club providing for these boys? Basically, they said they gave the student up to two hours on each night of learning,、ah. you know, learning in Chinese literature, math, on top of you know the. The martial arts training, but the way the story sounded was that most of this was martial arts training, right? Yeah, yeah. Basically, they they train full time as a, a martial arts fighters. Okay, so what does this really tell us about the state of China's welfare system?、Uh, according to these、uh, various reports, they are the children are orphaned, or their parents、um, physically or mentally、uh, disabled. They Basically, they could not provide them with basic care, and I think the government in in their hometown should step in. But then apparently there's no such system in place, so they be either you know wandering on the streets or doing nothing. It's also I said before they cannot go to the school because they they don't have the local hukou, so it's kind of dilemma. Well, I get the sense that you don't think their prospects in their hometowns was especially good to begin with. Is, is that the case? The, the students、uh, came from Liangshan Prefecture, is an area populated with the Yi minority people, and is this place is one of the most impoverished regions in China.、Mm. Uh, so the 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 basic care is not there. Well, thanks very much, Rongde. That's this week's show. Thanks for joining us. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina dot com with your feedback. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by Subchina and is produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. 
Be sure to check out the Seneca Podcast, the current affairs show I host with Jeremy Goldcorn, and follow the news from China every day at SupChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at SupChina.com. Take care.